Several years ago now, my paternal grandparents had a large influx of chipmunks into their backyard. So much so that it was starting to become a problem. They were building a a home under their deck. And so my grandpa decided he needed to do something about it. But he wanted to be humane to God's creatures, and so he decided he was going to trap them alive and then go and release them somewhere else. So he bought the traps at the hardware store, came back, he caught a bunch of the chipmunks, loaded them into the trunk of his car, drove off to the forest preserve where he then proceeded to prepare to unload these chipmunks into the forest preserve. And that's when a park ranger drove up and said, are you releasing chipmunks into the forest preserve? My grandpa said, well, I was about to. And he said, you can't do that, you're upsetting the ecosystem. But that wasn't the end of it for this overzealous park ranger. My grandfather, who was in his mid-80s at this point, was written a ticket for releasing chipmunks into the forest preserve, for which he had to appear before a Cook County judge. So he shows up on his court date with his ticket, shows it to the clerk. She thinks that she's being punked or something, like she's on some (laughs) hidden camera show. But of course, he really did have a ticket, and he appears before the judge, and the judge looks at the park ranger and says, did you really write this man a ticket for releasing chipmunks in the forest preserve? And the park ranger doubled down and said, well, he's upsetting the ecosystem, but aren't there already chipmunks living there anyway? So the judge, kind of appalled at this waste of taxpayer money, looks at my grandpa and says, well, how do you plead? My grandpa says, well, what happens if I plead not guilty? The judge says, well, then we'll have to have a trial. And my grandpa says, and then he says, if you plead guilty, then you're free to go. So my grandpa says, well, I did it. I plead guilty. And he was free to go. No charges, no fines, nothing like that. But part of me wishes that my grandpa had actually pled not guilty to those charges, and we could have actually had a trial for releasing chipmunks into the forest preserve. I would have loved reading about the proceedings in the Chicago Tribune about the chipmunk bandit releasing chipmunks where he shouldn't be. It would have been a strange trial, to be sure. This morning, I want to take us into another strange trial, but it's not one that happens in a physical courtroom, not one with actual attorneys in nice suits with their case files spread out in front of them, not one with judges in black robes, not one with a jury but a trial that takes place within our own psyches. And it's described by Mark Galley, the editor-in-chief of Christianity Today magazine, as the court of self-justification. The court of self-justification. And the charge in the court of self-justification is always that we were being useful and not, or not being useful, and that we were not doing anything productive for anybody else. Now, Galley describes it for his own life, and I've adapted it for my own. This is what the court of self-justification often looks like for me. One of the things that I really enjoy is watching professional basketball. I am a a big NBA fan. Uh, I played basketball for a little while into high school. Remember, I was this tall when I was in eighth grade. It's a natural sport for me to play. I also grew up in Chicago in the 90s when Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls were the demigods of American culture. So even today, I still really enjoy watching basketball. It doesn't matter what team's playing. It's the only sport that I can watch no matter who's playing. And so at the end of a long day during basketball season, I like to unwind by watching 
an NBA basketball game or on the weekends watching an NBA basketball game. And that's when I find myself in the court of self-justification. The prosecuting attorney says, shouldn't you be doing something useful? You know, Axel's toys are spread out all over the basement. Maybe you should be cleaning those up. It's not only Heather's job to clean those up. Shouldn't you be doing dishes or housework? And sometimes the prosecuting attorney is a really devout Christian. Shouldn't you be doing something useful for the kingdom of God? You know, the kingdom of God isn't going to arrive by itself. And here you are watching grown men throw an orange ball into a hoop who are paid way too much money. My defense is always the same. I work hard. It's been a long day. It's been a long week. I want to rest. I want to take time for something that I enjoy. And the prosecuting attorney will always grant that and say, well, great, you get to rest, but shouldn't you be doing something useful and productive with your rest? You know you have that big stack of books that you bought that you haven't read any of those yet. Shouldn't you be doing something useful? Maybe you found yourself in that court of self-justification, doing something you enjoy and then being made to feel guilty for it, not by something that anyone else has said, but simply by the own internal monologue that exists within you. Because that's the, the effect that Pharaoh has on us, that Pharaoh doesn't just control our lives, Pharaoh can control our minds, and, and Pharaoh can want to make sure that our rest is even productive, that we cannot take time for the things that we enjoy. Because Pharaoh has never really left us. Pharaoh has simply transformed himself. He has transformed himself into those American ideals of constantly doing, constantly striving, constantly producing, constantly consuming, and there could never be rest. There could never be time for the things that we enjoy. But of course, work is not all bad. I don't mean to say that all work is bad, that God does call us to a particular way of life, to love our neighbors, to care for those who are in need, to seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. But the sum total of our lives is not reduced to simply what we can produce and what we can do, that we were made not just simply to be workhorses in the cogs of industry and the, and the cogs of constant productivity, but we are also called to joy, to enjoying life, to enjoying the things that God has given to us. We have in the Presbyterian Church this thing known as the Book of Confessions, and I'm sure all of you have read it cover to cover. <laughs> the Book of Confessions is this collection of documents that we take as the corporate expression of what we believe, and, or more, more accurately, a guide to what we believe. We don't all believe every single word that's in there. But one of the confessions, it says, what is the chief end of humankind? Why are we here? And it says, and this is a quote from the Book of Ecclesiastes as well, it says that we are here to glorify God and to enjoy God forever. That we are to glorify God, and we glorify God in the things that we do by, that I just mentioned, by loving our neighbors, by serving those in need. But we are also here to enjoy God, to enjoy the life that God has given to us. One of the preachers that I listen to for my own spiritual growth, because I don't listen to my own sermons for my own spiritual growth, right? One of the preachers that I listen to, he talks about God being an omnipresence, that God is everywhere, that there is nowhere where God is not. And so our lives are always the stage for not only glorifying God, for doing the things that God calls us to, but they're also the stage for enjoying God, for enjoying what he has made. 
Because the God who liberates the slaves in Egypt is also the creator God who creates the world out of a sense of joy, who creates the world with a sense of playfulness. We don't often associate that word with God, right? God being playful. That playfulness is a, a word that we associate with our childhoods that are long past. We remember the, the make-believe we used to pretend, the, the games we used to play, the imaginary friends we used to tell our secrets to. But we often don't think of God as being playful. One of the formative theologians from my own life is a man named Jürgen Moltmann. And as you can guess by his name, he was not an American. Jürgen Moltmann wrote a book called A Theology of Play. And just so you know, that book is out of print. It costs something like over $1,000 to buy a copy now. Just to give you an indication of how infrequently we think about God as being playful. But in this book, Theology of Play, what Moltmann says is that God is a self-sufficient being. And what that means is that God doesn't need anyone or anything else to exist. That God exists completely alone. God doesn't need anything to help him exist. And yet, God creates the world. That God creates the world out of this sense of playfulness, out of this sense of joy, out of this extending life to other beings, of wanting other beings, of wanting us to share in the joy of being alive, of existing. As we think about those creation narratives in Genesis, God is playful as the world comes into being. God speaks things into existence each of the six days. and At the end of each of those six days, God steps back. And God says, everything is good. God marvels at, wonders at, celebrates the things that God is creating. A few days ago, I was watching my son, Axel, as he was coloring a picture. And when he was done, he would step back and just be so impressed with the work that he had done, marveling at, wondering at the thing that he had made. And there's a sense that God is stepping back in the sort of playful action of creating things, stepping back and enjoying them. And of course, when God creates humankind, God is playing in the sand and in the dirt to form us. And then when it's all over, that first Sabbath day, God calls everything good once again. God steps back and enjoys the creation, everything that God has made. But there was someone else there at creation, and we heard from her in our reading today from the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs has a lot of these interesting poetic characters in there. And one of the main characters is one that's known as either Lady Wisdom or Woman Wisdom. Either name would work for her. And Lady Wisdom is the personification of wisdom. Now, we tend to think of wisdom as sort of this acquiring of knowledge, of dispensing of knowledge, that grandma and grandpa are especially wise and we should listen to what they have to say. But in the biblical tradition of wisdom that we find in the book of Proverbs as well as, as other parts of the Bible, wisdom is not simply about knowing the right thing or saying the right thing. That wisdom is not about self-help. This isn't 50 steps to the good life or, or, or chicken soup for the Christian soul. Wisdom is about shaping and forming our characters within the realm of God. That we are always within the realm of God, so how are we called to live? And we live in this highly individualistic culture where we think about my inner character just being an, uh, an individual exercise. But what Proverbs is about is that our, uh, the shaping of our character has implications beyond just ourselves. It's about 
the shaping of character to help affect the common good. The decisions that I make, the formation of my character has an effect on others around me. And we have seen that throughout the course of this pandemic, right? That the decisions that I make, decisions you make for your health and your well-being, of course, have an effect on people in your own household, the people you work with, the people you interact with. And so we see Lady Wisdom describing how she came into existence. She says that before God created anything, she was created, but not simply created. The language that is used here is that she is born from God, that she is brought forth from God the way that a child is brought forth from a woman, that she is the, a child of God. And it says that she is there alongside of God as everything is brought into existence. That she is there, in the translation I read, she is there as a master worker. But another way of reading that in the Hebrew is saying that she was there like a little child. That she was there like a little child, delighting in all of the things that God was creating. Delighting as God was forming the mountains and setting the boundaries of the sea. She is there joining and finding joy in the work that God is doing. Another Axel story for you. I'm sorry you get two of those today. Axel loves to take part in the work that is, is happening. He loves to help us cook, and it always takes longer and is way messier than it normally would be, but he loves to take part in that. The other day, we had a, an issue with our air conditioner, had to have a, a repairman come in, and it was everything Heather and I could do to keep him away from the repairman because he wanted to join in the work. Lady Wisdom is there like a little child alongside of God as creation is formed. And she delights in the creation that is being made. She delights in the human race. On that first Sabbath day, at the dawning of creation, she delights in what God makes. Now, Lady Wisdom, we are meant to grow up with her in the book of Proverbs. From the beginning of Proverbs to the end of Proverbs, we are meant to grow alongside of her. We are meant to see her as a sister or as a friend, and we are meant to learn from her about how we are called to live. And she has a lot to teach us about how to live. But here in chapter 8, what she has to teach us is how to take time to delight in the life that God has given us, to find joy in the life that God has given us. Now, it's said that the preacher always preaches to themselves, and maybe you've gotten the sense as we've gone through this Sabbath series that I'm just preaching to myself and you all just happen to be here. But that is especially true here today, that this was the most difficult sermon for me to write in this series, the sermons, a sermon about delighting in and finding joy in the life that God has given us. Because I often find myself in that court of self-justification, before I, when I was going into the ordination process to be ordained as a pastor, one of the first things that I had to do was I had to take a psychological evaluation, which sounds way more intense than it was. I wasn't like in some dark lit room and, at the FBI or anything like that. It was simply a chance for us to figure out what are our strengths, what are the things that we are, are good at that we need to continue to develop, and also what are our growing edges? What are the things that perhaps we struggle with, perhaps the things that we're not aware that we struggle with? And one of the results of my psychological evaluation was that I needed to take more time for joy and for fun, to take time to enjoy the things that I actually enjoy. 
because I am often in that court of self-justification. I know I seem like I'm super fun. (laughs) But in my relationship with Heather, she's the one who's fun. She's the one who makes people want to hang out with us, not me. (laughs) And as I've been in that court of self-justification many times in my life, for a long time, that prosecuting attorney, that internalized prosecuting attorney was really good at convincing me and making me feel guilty for not doing things, for taking time for the things that I enjoy that are productive for nobody. That is until I learned how to say, thank you for your input, but I'm enjoying myself right now. Thank you for your input, but I'm enjoying myself right now. And those Words are words of salvation for me. Those are are words that free me from the the impulses of Pharaoh that I need to constantly be productive, constantly be doing, that I cannot take a break, that even my rest has to somehow be productive. No, I can take time for the things that are useful to nobody and simply enjoy the life that God has given to me. Later Christian interpreters would come to this passage in Proverbs 8, and they would see Jesus all over the place. That the language that's used here of lady wisdom being born from God is the same sort of theological language that we as Christians talk about with Jesus, that Jesus wasn't simply created by God, but Jesus is born from God. Or the idea that everything comes into being with lady wisdom. The same things are are talked about with Jesus, that Paul says all things come into being through Christ, and not one thing exists that did not come into being through him. And of course, We view Jesus as a a guide to our lives, as someone who teaches us how we are called to live. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I have come so that you might have life and life to the fullest. Not just life, but life that is filled to the brim and and spills over life that is lived to the fullest. If you grew up in the church, you probably know the story of when the little children were coming to Jesus Uh, The parents were bringing them to Jesus, and Jesus was healing them. And the disciples were especially grouchy that day, and they said, you know, stop bringing your kids up here. But Jesus says, don't deny them. Let them come to me, for such is the kingdom of God, that you will not inherit the kingdom of God unless you become like a little child. And there's a lot to unpack with that statement that would have to be unpacked in another sermon. but, But think about what Jesus says that you cannot experience the fullness of the kingdom of God unless you can accept it with the wonder and the marveling and the joy that is often accompanied with little children. Think about the seriousness of Jesus' message, caring for the poor, seeking justice, and yet he says you cannot experience the fullness of this unless you can accept it as a little child. Jesus was often in trouble because of the people that he partied with, that Jesus partied with sinners and outcasts, and they said, why are you eating and drinking with those people? And Jesus says it's a a celebration of the kingdom of God. At at the first wedding feast he was at, he turns the water into wine, the story goes, so that the, the host can save face. After everybody's had too much to drink, he gives them even more. Jesus went camping with a bunch of dudes for three years over the course of his ministry. 
you cannot tell me that there were not pranks and jokes along the way. I've been to the men's ministry meetings. And you cannot tell me that Jesus gathered together with 12 other dudes and there was not joking and joy and laughter after all of the crowds had gone away, taking time just to simply enjoy each other's company. As we conclude this Sabbath sermon series this morning, I think that this is a fitting end. To remember that the Sabbath is not simply a day of rest, not simply a day of looking out for the needs of those around us, but it is also a day of joy, of remembering the gift of life that God has given to us, of delighting in this life. That Lady Wisdom, and later as she is embodied in Jesus, they come to teach us how to live, and they come to remind us that life is one of joy, it's one of delight. It's one of enjoying all the things that God has given to us. And so I pray that your Sabbath would not only be a day of rest, I pray that it would not only be a day of justice where you can make sure that those who are often left out can experience the rest that God offers, but I pray that it's also a day of joy for you, a day where you can do those things that are useful to nobody, but a day where you can simply let loose to delight as Lady Wisdom does in all the things that God has made and in the very life that God has given to you. Thanks be to God. Amen.